This episode is powered by denmeditation.com. The meditation is the primary focus. The bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Den Talks podcast. This is Tal, your host and the founder of Den Meditation. We have Laura Dawn on today. I love this episode, you guys, because we haven't talked about psychedelics a ton. I mean, we've touched on it a little bit, but not a ton. And she's such an amazing human to have on here. And we talk about it all. So if you're someone who is curious about getting into it, maybe nervous, don't really understand it, this is a great episode. But also if you're someone who already deep dives, we talk about altered states of consciousness, how you can tap into your creativity. We get into this idea that every single one of us is creative. I know there's so many people out there who don't think they're creative, but you are. Psychedelics are a bridge to helping you tap into more. And it's not taking you somewhere that's unfamiliar. It may seem unfamiliar to you in the way our mind works and how we were taught, but it's really just tapping into the deeper sides of you. So she's incredible. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let me know what you think. Let me know where you are on this journey. If you're someone who's not into it, if you're someone who's, you know, deep dives into it already, I'm so curious. So drop a line. Please tell us what you think. And always, if you can leave a review, super, super helpful. Also, don't forget, we've been doing these monthly forecasts if you haven't already tuned into them. So if you're ever just curious what's going on for the month, grab our monthly forecast. It's a short episode that kind of lets you energetically understand what's happening coming up for you. Thank you for being here with us. Um, you're the perfect person to talk to. This is not tra- this is not a specifically psychedelic podcast. We talk about everything, so it's not weird to have you on. But meaning, it's not like I've had this conversation a million times with people. So I think mm-hmm. it's I think you are the perfect person to talk about it because there's so much about it. And I realize, oh my god, we haven't actually done a lot of conversations about, you know, using psychedelics in this space. We've done a little bit, but not a ton. So I was so excited to bring you on because I just feel like you have such a lovely and um, effortless way of actually explaining it. Part of it's because you just live and breathe it so much. It's just innately who you are. Um, but it's also, you know, easy to access through you, I feel like, which I think is... Mm-hmm pretty brilliant and a beautiful gift you have that you've been bringing to the world. Um, So I want to get into so many aspects of it because I have a feeling you and I might get into some really heady conversations, which I love. Um, So I want to get some of like the bait, like some stuff in the beginning, just because, you know, I've heard if I'm correct and correct me if I'm wrong, you started with psychedelics early, right? Like age 15 or something. Mm -hmm. Yep. Talk a little bit about that and how I'm assuming when you started, it wasn't like for a scientific purpose. I have a feeling you were 15 year old, like, woohoo. So I want to know a little more about like, A, where did you live? How that journey began? And then we'll talk about how then it shifted ultimately. Yeah. Thank you for all your kind words. And it's a pleasure to be here with you. So thank you for having me on the show. Um, I would say, yeah, in my my 14, 15-year-old mind, I was very curious. And I like to tell the story that actually before I started journeying with magic mushrooms, as we called it then, I think some people still do, but it's funny how even that's shifting a little bit. Um, 
By the way, you I see have, it in scientific articles. It'll be funny. They'll be like magic mushrooms. Magic and I'm like, mushrooms. I think they still refer to it like that. <laughs> yeah. And I hope that we don't lose that sense of magic through the medicalized route, which is something that I think is worth speaking to. And maybe we'll get into that a little later on. But one of my earliest memories as a child was my father holding me under my armpits and counting to three and swinging me into the deep end. And he was very much like, you can swim, just learn how to swim. And I think that that was very foreboding for me in my life. And I grew up, I was a water baby. I also grew up diving. Mm. And I remember as a kid, that my dream world was so alive and it still is very active. But as a child, I remember just pulling like just this feeling of like, you know, nails on a chalkboard sitting through the time between like recess and lunch. And I just wouldn't think I just want to get home so I could go back to sleep and go back into like fantasy realms because I was so vivid and I would fly every night in my dreams. And there was a very thin veil for me between dream state and waking consciousness. And I remember using having to like ask my parents, did that really happen? Or was that in my dream world? And as a child, I had to learn how to distinguish between the two. And Do you so have I any think, dreams that like stand out that you remember? I used to have a lot of flying dreams and it would be would me flying, but also me in like these little aircraft Ooh. dreams. And, and I can actually still remember dreams that I had as a child vividly. And mm -hmm. it's it's really interesting. And so for me, I think that that was my sort of introduction to altered states of consciousness. And now when we look at other cultures, shamanic cultures, especially, we understand that there's there's these two terms. I don't know if you've ever heard them before, but a Western culture is what we call a monophasic culture and more indigenous cultures are polyphasic. And it means that in Western culture, we only value one dimension of consciousness as like, this is real, you know, everything else is not real and waking consciousness is it. But in indigenous cultures, actually dream time is real, if not more real than waking consciousness. This is the dream. And so, and I find that really fascinating that in other cultures, we value other ways of knowing and when we start looking at really deeply hidden beliefs and hidden assumptions that we have, this is a perfect example of, for example, like looking at psychedelics, I'm going to just dive into the deep end here yeah. because it's a great segue. But when we look at hidden assumptions, like the medicalized route, for example, and we enter the conversation through the through the narrative of psychedelics to help reduce mental illness, it's very different than when we look at them through the lens of creativity, for example, or we understand through a different cultural lens that there are more ways to know. So if someone has a profound insight in a psychedelic journey in Western culture, we might dismiss that and say, well, you were just tripping or you know, that's not a valid way of knowing because you are on a hallucinogen, but mm -hmm. in other cultures that we might actually consider that very differently, ding, that there ding, ding, are, ding. there are other ways to know. And we have tons of different hidden assumptions and biases like that, that prevent us from having 
a wider expansive experience with psychedelic medicines because of the frame of reference the cultural narrative that we're approaching them as so as a as a kid i struggled with different things i struggled with teenage depression um and i was just really curious to see what else is there to this life besides just waking consciousness. So I had a really strong desire, a really insatiable curiosity. And I think that that's what led me, you know, on, on this path. Okay. I have so many questions off of that. And so I'm, I'm going to go to the kid one first, and then I want to go back to the consciousness. But so you, as a kid, you recognize you had teenage depression or were you, or did your parents rec like, how did, was that even part of the awareness that you were aware that you were depressed? Oh, it's so interesting. I've been thinking about this more lately. Do you know the term pain body? Eckhart Tolle was, was the one who started talking about pain body. And he his spiritual teachings were like kind of blowing up when I was like in my late teens, early 20s. And I had a very supportive, alternative-minded mother. My father was also very alternative-minded, um, but in a different, in a different way. I, I was raised by two entrepreneurs and um you know, my parents encouraged us. I was the youngest of four kids. And I remember pitching my first business plan at the dinner table at eight years old. And that's what we did. It was like, okay, by dessert, you know, you, you pitch ideas and we're going to like evaluate them. And I remember having this feeling as in my teenage years of this heaviness that I felt like wasn't mine which mm. is really interesting. Like I felt Very. like this, this isn't mine, when you're but teen, I'm everything is yours. You're like, so egocentric at that point. That's just how we are. The fact that you had an awareness of like, no, nope, this isn't mine is actually beyond. Yeah. And I have so much compassion thinking about, you know, the millions upon millions of children and teenagers that have that struggle with depression these days. And it was really hard. You know, it was really, really hard. I had seasonal affective disorder. I lived in Montreal. It was dark when I woke up, dark by the time I, I went home. Mm. I was training as an athlete. And now when I read the research, like Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, and one of the things that we know now is when you deprive teenagers of sleep, it's really not great for cognitive development. And I think the sleep deprivation combined with other things didn't help, but there was like a distinct darkness of like, I'm carrying something ancestral that doesn't feel like mine. And I remember the first sort of real out of body experience I had, my, my mother was a Reiki master when I was mm. a kid and she and her very close friend, they did a session on me. And I remember feeling for the first time something like really profound was happening for me. And there was a weight that was lifted. And I remember they both put their hands on different parts of my body when I was on uh, a massage table, like really offering me healing energy. And I remember when they would move their hands to like a different part of my legs, those first like imprints were still there. And by the end of the session, I felt like I had, you know, a hundred pairs of healing hands all over my body. And I felt energy moving through me in a different way that I hadn't felt before. And that was also really opening something up for me. Like there's something more here. And when I look back 
through that time in my life, I'm actually so grateful. Depression has been probably one of my greatest teachers in my life. Because when you hit a place of suffering, you get really inspired to figure out how to step out of that dark room that feels suffocating and claustrophobic. Is, was it very much teenage years and the depression went away or is depression something that you carry? It's come and gone, but I think through the teachings of what really, really helped me, I would say psychedelics are catalysts for change. So yes, they help. But if you're not implementing the change in integration in the moments in between the nitty gritty moments of your everyday life, then it's, it's, it's just more recreational. Not that recreational can't be enjoyable. I'm very much pro, um, play as a form of healing, which I really think that we need to be talking more about in our culture. Laughter is really good medicine for us, I think, especially now in our culture. But it was really the Buddhist teachings that helped me more than anything as an ally on the path of working with with medicines and learning about like, I'll, I'll never forget the the time that I was listening to Pema Chodron talking about healing. And, and I remember her saying, you know, like the pathway to healing is this. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, what? Tell me, like, what is the pathway to healing? Like, I'll do anything. Where and do I go? Was, yeah, like, what is it? What's the secret? And, and because I was really suffering in my life and she was talking about coming out of like the the dark cocoon and like reaching a hand outward and connecting to other people who also feel suffering and i thought mm. wow like that's it like connecting to our shared common humanity is the pathway to healing and and it like that kind of instruction with alongside you know maitri and loving kindness and compassion and then also understanding like her teacher chogim trumpa rinpoche said the path of waking up is inherently a path of befriending yourself. And I'll never forget the first time I heard that. And it stuck with me all of these years, 20 years later. And so I think about these teachings still to this day of how much they've helped me and how much it's helped me to now when I experience this sense of, of weight or darkness or heaviness, I know that it's not me like it's just the weather coming through you know so there Chill. was a time like where it's like yeah right where, where it's like you experience depression and then you get depressed because you're depressed and then you have to get out un from under the shame of being depressed before you can actually address the depression because that, and that's what in buddhism we call that the second arrow and the third arrow it's like just deal with the first arrow the fact that you're depressed from an objective perspective and her teacher, Pema Chodron's teacher, Chogim Trumpa, would talk about his own experience with depression. Like it's a quality, it's a certain texture. There's yeah. something that is so like, just so distinctly that kind of feeling. And I remember the instruction was like, look at it from just the most insatiable curiosity that you can like make direct contact with it open up to like what is there and become really familiar with that like quality with that texture and that really changed my approach to navigating low moods you know and that experience of depression and 
Yeah. And so not to even like de- pathologize low moods, because I think that that's also part of the, the pathology of our culture is that, you know, we, we're, we, we have this sense of like negative emotion, bad emotion, even like on the spectrum of, yeah. oh, this is negative. This is positive. And labeling something as negative, I think it immediately goes into like, that's not good. So you should find a way to avoid feeling that. And I think that that, leads to the whole sort of catastrophe. We talk about that all the time, like in my classes, just how can you recognize stuff without putting labels on it? You know, Mm -hmm. and it's like the minute you stop saying something is good or bad, but recognize it exists. Because that's the thing. I think people either, you know, go into, you know, just pretending everything's positive, which also has its own issues. It's like, well, let me just look at everything on the positive part of it instead of the shadow. You can do that. But it's like, no, recognize that everything's there. That feeling, like you were saying, that heaviness, that that mood, it exists. It's there. But like, let's not put the label on it and then watch what happens. And then it just becomes the teacher that you're talking about, which mm-hmm. I think is amazing. And it's when you start unraveling that, then you start to see that you put labels on everything. <laughs> like you just really mm-hmm. start to realize, to go back to what you were talking about, Pema, in the beginning, one of the first things you said, which I think is interesting, is I think it ties back to what you were talking about earlier. The first part of the quote was, was it reached through the cocoon? Right. Mm-hmm. And then it was the humanity part. And it's like, you know, when you were talking about dreams and how shamanic cultures and other cultures, you know, don't almost separate your waking life from your sleeping life as anything different. They're just different ways of accessing self. And mm-hmm. I've always found that fascinating too, because it's true. It's like when you start to look at yourself as an energetic body that has lived many lifetimes. Mm-hmm. then yeah, why would only the physical state of being awake be the only information you're given? And I think what we all realize when you start getting into it is that's actually the most limited part of you because mm-hmm. we put all these labels, going back to what you're saying, we put these labels, we put these constructs, we have our experiences that make it smaller and small. That cocoon gets tighter mm-hmm. and tighter and tighter. It's like when you said cocoon, it almost made me feel like the physical body. And then it's like Mm -hmm. everything you were talking about, this sleeping state and the information you get in your dreams or probably stuff that's happening you don't even remember is kind of beyond it. And there's and and like you were saying, and what you get from, you know, this medicine, too, are these abilities to go deeper and beyond kind of what this physical body has constrained us in. And I find that to be such an interesting thought. So I wanted you to open up a little bit more about how when you're saying dreams, but also, and you were saying it's an avenue into this medicine that also allows you to do that. But talk a little bit about the difference of, you know, especially when people are like, nope, get it away. It's not good for you. We don't do that stuff. Or like you were saying, I wouldn't trust it. You were tripping at the time. You must've had a great trip, but you were tripping. So it's just a nice, fun, you know, mm-hmm. you know, illusion that you had. So talk a little bit about this idea of our human form and maybe throughout the years, how we've lived in this kind of tight construct. I mean, a lot of us, you had a very different experience, which I think is amazing, but a lot of people are just coming to the things that you learned as a kid because of your parents. Um, This idea that there are things beyond just what we're taught and how small we are and how the medicine actually connects to that. Yeah. Well, I think a really helpful approach to approach this question and this conversation for people is like, So from a Buddhist perspective, 
and meditation, for example, it's really all about coming to know the nature of mind. And it's so funny that in our culture, we don't have a word for mind, body, heart, integrated one thing. Right. It's, it's, it's so funny. And, and again, it's like in Western culture, because we're coming out of this Cartesian era of mind body separation, there's so much hidden beliefs and assumptions that are so deeply embedded in our cultural psyche that that prevents us from experiencing something different because that is the embedded assumption. It's the perceptual lens that we have. And it's not good or bad. It just is what's been happening. And part of the reason that I love looking at other languages and other cultures when they have words that point to something that we don't have a word for in English language, it opens up a new way of seeing, like literally the words we use create our worlds. It's how we see. If we really wanted to go into the neuroscience of it is we actually see what we believe. And that's not spiritual woo. I get down with, you know, the, the mysticism of spiritual woo sauce, but this is actually from a neuroscience perspective. So, I mean, wouldn't that just be par to, you know, when you, and I used to do it as an athlete too. I was a, I was a young, I was an athlete as a kid too. And I used to just go to sleep dreaming and nobody told me to do it. And then it became a thing, but I'd go to sleep and I would just picture like hitting the ball perfectly, like over and over and over again. So it's funny that people think it's woo. It's like, no, they teach this in sports. It's now such a big thing. It's like, just imagine because, and you correct me because you study this. It's like your brain doesn't know the difference when you're doing it in your mind or you're physically doing. Now, yes, there is something to your physical muscle memory happening when you're doing it physically. Mm -hmm. But as far as your mind, you can train those neural pathways for the same thing as if you sat out there and practiced for hours. And mm -hmm. that's why they tell you to do it. And I mean, I think that's what you're referring to a little bit, right? What you see in... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're bringing in a different dimensionality of mental rehearsal and imagery, which is so powerful. And combining that with psychedelic medicine work, I think is really incredibly powerful. And I think very few people are talking about this. I mean, this brings it in a direction of um, actually what I believe is one of the most underexplored topics in the psychedelic space, in the psychedelic, I would say, you know, field is the role that imagination plays in our healing mm -hmm. therapeutic potential. But to go back to what I, and, and let's talk about Sorry. that because it's really interesting, oh. but no, 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 it's all good. I mean, like I'm the same way because there, there's like literally a hundred you know, options. I know. So, but I do find like the way that I view psychedelic medicines, sacred plant medicines is through this lens of really understanding like the nature of mind and the nature of consciousness. And that's why I feel like there are so many helpful teachings. Like in Buddhist philosophy, there's a word bodhicitta, which means heart, mind, it's one thing. And so we don't have these words in English language that allow us to experience like the unity of open mind, open heart, right? And so we separation. use... We, Right. We got to use these metaphors. So yeah, that's for me, it's like what I think about in terms of like depression or creativity or all of the mental activity that is not just neck up. Like 
you know, that's another bias of like cognition just happens neck up. Now we understand embodied cognition. We understand what we call 6E cognition, that cognition is the way that I'm understanding my sentient being within the context of the environment that I'm in. So it involves context, it involves movement, it involves social interaction. I mean, really so much is happening in the cognitive sciences right now. But the way that I really view it is understanding like the essence of who I am, which is like sky-like mind, right? And starting to see that everything else, our emotional experience, our mental activity is just the weather. And when I, I believe that when we take that kind of approach to working with medicines, that gives us a flexibility to craft our lives in a way and to shape and mold our identities in a more conducive way that's really in alignment and supportive towards flourishing rather than being stuck in the hamster wheel of ruminative thinking. It's like, that's a great metaphor, right? The, the hamster wheel or like the small dark room. It's like round and round and round with self. And we don't have a lot of anchors to think bigger. We don't have a lot of ways of helping us. That's why meditation is so helpful. But the it's, I think that we've like turned meditation into like a sit for 12 minutes to improve your focus and your attention rather than like really understanding the teachings that help support meditation towards like waking up to greater possibility in our lives. And that's what we're really doing. And we're doing that by cultivating metacognitive awareness, cultivating the observer, observer awareness of thoughts. And that's what psychedelic is. Psychedelic means mind manifesting. It's like a projector where you get to see more of your mental activity but which is also why we need really helpful teachings for that journey too. Because sometimes when we start seeing clearly, especially in Western culture, it's like the, the, you know, the pond settles. And then all of a sudden you see all the garbage at the beginning, at the bottom of the pond. And so we don't celebrate like, wow, I can see clearly. It's more just like, wow, look at all of these horrible ways that I've been acting. And, and that is, it, and it's again, it's a perspective shift. So we rejoice in seeing clearly and we celebrate seeing clearly. That doesn't come naturally to a very self-critical culture, right? Of And so we use that as ammunition against ourselves, like shaming ourselves for being out of integrity when we're really just learning what it means to be human, especially right now at this really extraordinary moment in time. So that's why I feel like the the teachings around how we sit formally in meditation and sitting in psychedelic space really can be so like supported through a wider body of, of wisdom that supports that process. Talk, let's talk some basics and then we're going to get back into the headier conversation because I love it. But for people who are tuning in that have either been thinking about doing this, I know that we have plenty of people who are already in the space playing with it, but I know there's people who are probably still a little bit like, what does it mean? You know, again, we have the old constructs of like LSD trips, like from back oh, in yeah. the day. So this is your so, brain. This is your brain on drugs. <laughs> yes. Egg. Um, yeah. <laughs> so talk a little bit about just the practical. And I know there's two kind of different versions, but talk a little bit, whether it's the psychotherapy version or a journey version, like you guys do a, what happens? Like, what do you do when you go into either of these? And then what happens? Like, what is it about the dosing that's different? What is being led? And then what's kind of, and I know everyone's experience is completely different, but like a broad idea of, you know, we're talking so esoterically now, like what would someone kind of 
happen? What would happen for someone? I mean, this is like, I mean, we could talk about this for the rest of our lives, every single moment until we die. So it's like, it's really hard to answer that question because it's so contextual, what we understand around set and setting. So I'll introduce some like very basic terms, set and setting. Set is your mindset, your attitudes, your identity construct, your expectations. And the setting is the context. So whether you're journeying with a psychedelic assisted psychotherapist on a couch with an eye mask in a room is going to be a very different experience than if you go down to the jungle and drink ayahuasca on the jungle floor. You know, there's, it's a very different contextual experience, um, which should make sense, right? Because it's life. Life is, it's like going to Burning Man is going to be a different experience than going to therapy. You know, both involve psychedelics, but of course it's going to be a very different outcome. So it depends on people's intentions, on people's expectations. And that makes for a very interesting conversation. Well, can you talk about like broad, and I know it's broad because I know everyone's so specific, but when you say it depends on people's intentions, Talk about like lanes then. If your intention is more blank, this is a perfect way to do it. If your intention is more this, this is a great way to do it. Well, see, so I I don't hold that, that like, that I know you don't like way way of thinking. So I think it's very helpful for, I would say, part of the whole psychedelic renaissance right now is on the back of Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which was very focused on the intersection of psychedelics and mental health. I would say 90% of the conversation in Western culture is revolved around psychedelics and mental. I will say, it's funny we say mental health, which is really just like a you know, pointing to mental illness, right? Which is like, so we're talking about the big four, depression, PTSD, anxiety, and addiction. And there is a lot of research now to show that psychedelics are very helpful for the treatment of these. And and it's like, I don't want to pathologize it either, you know, because it's really ruminative thinking. It's deeply ingrained habits. And so for people who are struggling with clinical depression, I think working going down that route of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is a great pathway, you know, but maybe not necessarily. Like I also really encourage people to trust their judgment and their intuition around what is right for them, you know? And so I have a great guide, 45 questions to vet your practitioner, guide, shaman, and to ask the right questions because we, we heal when we feel safe. So that's like, if you're going to remember anything as you're a newbie on the path that the most we're so hyper psychically sensitive when we're in an altered state. So the most important thing is to feel safe. Now, some people might feel totally safe riding in booty shorts on a bicycle on the playa on Burning Man. And other people might feel like I am not going to take five hits of acid, at, you know, in that setting. That is not safe for me. So it's very personal, you know, in terms of what people feel ready for, you know, and, right. and we're all so, so, so different in terms of that. And then talk about a little bit, and that makes total sense. It's like for some people, the idea of like traveling and going to a jungle might actually bring up so, so much anxiety versus sitting on a couch or vice versa. The idea of being on a couch with like a doctor over you might be like, oh, there's no freedom in that for someone and they might need more. So I think that totally makes sense. And like I teach all the time, it's like check in with yourself. What do you need? Mm-hmm. 
do you sit with every single person who ever comes and works with you and you just get such a very specific idea of who they are? And then what is your intention in creating the dose for them? Knowing that everyone's dose is completely different. Let's talk about it, not from a practitioner perspective, but from like an end user perspective, because that's who's, who's listening. Um, okay. A great way to start is really actually with cultivating a microdosing practice. And that to me is a great like entryway for people who are like, I'm not sure about this. And I, it helps people gain a sense of trust for these medicines like that mm. they are actually very wise and safe to use. Like people have been journeying in altered states of consciousness for millennia, you know? So I think that that's a great place. And I think the going towards mini dosing is also becoming more of a trend, like being able to be in a more of like a, a cognizant state, but we're, we're like exploring the landscape. I think that that's a really helpful um entryway and learning how to find a dose that works for you and start low go slow and then like build up over time like when you feel that like okay i've been microdosing and mini dosing for like six months now and i'm feeling in my heart in my body this knowing that i want to go deeper there are some great guides, like just have a, a sitter with you. And I have resources for that on my website. It's really easy to have a, a safe journey in the comfort of your own home without going anywhere and have a loved oh. one in another room and just check in on you. But that if someone is listening to this thinking that sounds crazy, it's not for you. Right. It's just, that's not for you. But there's a lot of people who are like, like, that's no, no big deal. And then it is for you because then, you know, in your being that like, you're ready for that. So no one's trying to like, for, I'm not trying to like say that anyone should do anything because that's kind of the opposite approach that I take. Agreed. It's like only go to the degree that your nervous system feels good, like move at the pace of your nervous system and having a journey where you know, like it would take a lot to physiologically harm the body because like these medicines have a really high um, threshold for toxicity. So physiologically, not much like you would have to eat an enormous amount of mushrooms to pose any physiological risk to yourself. Psychologically speaking, that's different. It's a different conversation, but ultimately throughout the years of just witnessing so many people journey, even when people have very difficult psychological content come up, it, these medicines help us work through it, you know? And so like going into the five, 10 grams where we're starting to talk more about like a hero's dose, like not everyone, you can actually have a super profound life altering journey on one gram of mushrooms. And I know people who are like a gram, that's my freaking microdose, you know? So it, it really depends on how mm -hmm. sensitive you are, what the context is, but more than anything, it's safety. Like whatever you feel is going to be some people like 
I don't really like sitting in groups anymore. I like sitting at home in like the comfort of my living room, you know? And so for some people that feels great and other people they're like, no, I need more sport, especially when they're starting out, you know? And so sitting with a sitter or a guide, or if you are, you know, feeling like there's like really unearthed trauma that you're really trying to work through, then I really recommend working with someone who is trauma-informed, trained in different therapeutic modalities, and who knows about these medicines. So speaking of trauma, how often is trauma discovered through a journey? It absolutely can be. You know, I mean, I journeyed for 17 years, like heavily before I had a journey where I was like, okay, something happened during my mom's pregnancy with me. And I had a vision, a clear vision and a clear feeling. And my mom and I are very close. And the next day I called my mom and I was like, what happened while you were pregnant with me? And she started immediately crying. And I was like, wow, okay. Like, I can't believe you've not told me like what, you know, what's going on. And she basically, you know, and I've shared this publicly before, although it feels it's very sensitive. You know, my mom was uneducated. I was the youngest of, she already had three kids and she just had my sister a year earlier and she didn't want to have any more children. And so she went to the abortion clinic and she was in the chair ready to abort me. And she just decided last minute that she wanted to keep me. And I picked up on that in a journey years what, later, 17 what years the, into sitting. <laughs> what was the vision for you that you got from the baby state, I guess? Yeah, it was like, like yeah, it's hard to explain visionary realm in words that people can, you know, really like make sense. Yeah. But there's some great models like Stan Groff's perinatal matrix model where this is the beauty and the drawback of models. If you have a framework, then you try to fit everything into that box, you know, so that's why it's nice to know a lot of different modalities. Um, But it was more a feeling and knowing that something had happened during my like part of my birth story and that that had like translated into a lot of suffering of a feeling of not belonging in my childhood Mm. years you know when we come back to like the depression for example so yeah, the, 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 the body and the mind are so wise and so intelligent. And so we have ways of burying things that we don't want to feel, you know, and that actually was very an intelligent coping mechanism for survival. You know, know, it's it's so interesting because my daughter is adopted and I know her bio mom for many reasons that are totally understandable. Same thing went in twice for an abortion and just couldn't do it. Wow. Um, I know. And I've always, and I've said it, I've said on this podcast too before of like, I, I can feel that she carries stuff from either the womb and probably ancestral stuff that I don't understand. Um, and between that and I'm sure just adoption in general, I'm always curious to know how that, like how that sits in for her. Maybe it's manifesting now, maybe it's not, I don't know, it's not me, but it's mm-hmm. just really interesting to hear you talk about it. 
Right. And, and so we had a, a really deep clearing around it. And when things come to the surface, that's where we can like really offer it forgiveness, you know, understanding. Well, that's what I'm gonna you mentioned earlier, and I think it's important. I mean, I think it's kind of obvious, but I think it's important to talk to talk about it a little bit of, okay, so you go on a journey, you have this crazy vision that's very revelatory for you. It's, it sounds like it probably really cleared a big thing for you, but talk about energetically how much clearing happens by just having the vision alone and then the work that needs to be done afterwards. Mm. That question makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting because for me, the vision also, like sometimes my visionary state is very integrated with how I perceive like energetic channels in my body, for example. Yeah. So like the medicine will do a deep clearing on these different channels in the body, however you want to like verbalize that because different cultures have different, you know, the nadis in Eastern philosophy or, you know, in Chinese medicine, there's, there, we have energetic channels in our body. And I do believe that these medicines work on those subtle, subtle channels for clearing. Yeah. And so part, sometimes when I'm in that phase of a journey where it's like a really deep clearing happening, my visionary realm is very like microscopic in terms of how I'm viewing those energy channels in my body. And actually, when you look at um, shamanic reports, like Jeremy Narby talks about this in, in his book, The Cosmic Serpent, the shaman will go down into like molecular reality. And that's where the healing happens. That's where mm -hmm. like the intersection of, you know, shamanic practices and like quantum reality might merge. Um, but so I do think that there's like a lot of, that actually does transpire because you feel this sense of like, lifted like more spaciousness because that what we were talking about earlier like that like depression or addiction think of it as like being in like a very tight you know ruminative loop and so and that's trauma and ptsd and so there's like a lot of deep grooves and when we feel relief of that we actually feel spaciousness we feel like a lifting of that pressure and this is really interesting because the work that I do is more actually, we know we've been talking a lot about depression because that's been my, my own experience. But my area of expertise in the psychedelic space is actually in the intersection between psychedelics and creativity and creative thinking. But I want to bridge this because when you think about depression as being like a hamster going around the same wheel, over and over and over again, deeper and deeper neurological grooves, it's hard to choose a new thought to step off the wheel, right? And when you think about it, that's the same thing of what creative thinking is. It's choosing a new thought, right? So actually, when we look under the hood, we see that the same reasons that are so helpful in the treatment of depression and addiction are also what help us to think differently, to create, to innovate, to inspire. And that comes back down to like that visionary place too of like imagination being actually part of the therapeutic potential to allow us to think that something else is possible and to see it in the mind. Well, I think that's huge. Cause and I, it's funny, I was gonna bring that up earlier when you were talking about imagination a little bit of, and then and how depression is kind of the more clinical part of it. And I was gonna say exactly that, which it feels like 
this idea of just finding a new perspective for yourself, like when you were saying seeing the ocean and the garbage, that takes a creative mind to create the other pictures and the other ideas that are even there. Mm -hmm. Creativity is so interesting and we should talk about it because I know that's your specialty and it's fascinating. You know, when I talk about that a lot in my classes too, of just, you know, opening up your creative mind and reminding people every single one of you is creative. Like, mm -hmm. I know we've weirdly been taught, like you're either creative or analytical. You either are good mm -hmm. at math or you like reading and writing. Right. And it's like, but I don't care mm -hmm. if you have more success pouring through numbers and doing people's books, chances are you're also creative in how you're doing the numbers and you're creative in how you see them and how they work. And that is creativity in itself, even though it's been weirdly, you know, labeled analytical, right? It's like, mm -hmm. there's also a huge amount of creativity in that. And, and then also just the basics of like deciding what you want to wear. That's anything. It's all, there's all creative aspects that you can use all the time and just creating what you want tomorrow, what you want in your relationship, what you want the next day is creative. Um, but I do find it interesting. A lot of people feel detached from kind of this spirituality or energy that's kind of bigger than this physical body because, and I've heard people say this because they've been taught not to trust their creativity because they aren't creative people. And it feels like a lot of what happens beyond a lot of people feel like they're making it up, mm -hmm. right? Oh, it's mm -hmm. my imagination. I'm making it up. So therefore it's not real. You said that in the beginning with dreams and not. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of people get stuck in that loop of like, no, anything that's either in the dream world or even if you were doing a journey and you might be like, well, did you receive something in that journey? It's like, yeah, but I'm sure I made it up. Like, or if you're doing a past life regression, no, no, no but I made it up. Mm. And I really try and instill in people, even if you think you're making it up, the idea that your brain went there, there's a reason. So mm. even if you made up every single step of that story, mm -hmm. or even if you made up blank, there's a reason you tapped into that current of pulling that part of your imagination down. And that is you connecting with your higher self, but talk a little bit about kind of that cocoon. And beyond that is the imagination beyond creativity, which I do think you're a thousand percent right. Of course you are, because this is what you do for a living, but that creativity is a huge way out of depression and a huge way out of addiction and all of, because like you said, it's getting yourself out of, off that hamster wheel to find another area to play in. And that's not easy, but everyone mm -hmm. has the ability. So talk about that. It's so fascinating. Well, I think this is, I, it's funny because we've been pointing to this a lot in terms of Western culture, deeply embedded belief systems, but just to kind of keep riffing on what you've been saying, which I totally agree with you. It's like all the, you know, pretty much everyone listening to this podcast, we're all products of an industrialized education system that was designed for a different era. We are moving, most people don't recognize this, but like we're actually have already moved into the fourth industrial revolution, which is really interesting to contemplate. And now yes. more than ever, we like, for example, the most in-demand jobs today were, didn't exist five years ago the most in-demand job. So our education system prepared us for a different era of, you know, we have 10 times more um, a variety of, of jobs as adults today than just a generation ago. That requires a lot of creative thinking, a lot of adaptability. And that's exactly what psychedelics actually help with. So when we look at psychedelic compounds, they affect a receptor site in the brain, the 5-HT2A receptor. And it actually enhances our ability to adapt in the face of stress. So it enhances our capacity for adaptability. And 
I find it very, just like the, what we were saying earlier about the mind-body separation, we have a generation of adults who have a deeply embedded belief system that they're not creative. And I feel like it's actually part of my mission to help re-inspire people to understand that we got here evolutionarily. Like we have creativity in our DNA. It's in our bones. It's who we are. That's how we got here. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for creative innovation, you know, but just in a very recent amount of history, we were taught convergent thinking over divergent thinking. You need to fit this spoke in this wheel because that's what's going to get you a job. This is, this is how you fit into society. This is how you're acceptable. And now we're in a very different era where if you're not creative, like the World Economic Forum, for fuck's sake, like they named creativity as the number one most important skill set for our time. Amazing. You know, that's a huge, huge, huge change. And we literally live in a culture immersed in the belief. Like you said, it's like you either have it or you don't. And we know now that, um, the belief, our beliefs around creativity matter. So tons of research has been done to show that if you believe you're not creative, you're not going to pursue creative pursuits. You're not going to, and you're actually going to be less effective at creative problem solving. And we need creative problem solving pretty much every moment throughout the day, especially these days with just the insanity of what we're living, you know? And and so for us, like as a culture, it is really, I feel like our highest calling right now, it's an all hands on deck situation. And I think the best thing that we can do to support humanity is by first really stepping into the identity construct. Like I am creative by definition of being alive and I need to put my life mm. to work in that way to help support new solutions. And, you know, it's, it's not, it, it's a, path for like very courageous people because when you create something with your life you know and you show people it's like the most vulnerable act possible you know so oh, we're totally i tell this story a lot how when i opened up the den <clears throat> for me to get the space was really difficult i had to be very creative in what i offered because when I said, I want to open up this drop-in meditation studio, that didn't exist at the time. So they were like, that business, what? how do I know that business is going to succeed? So I had to be creative. And then I found out I was up against a very established business that made sense, but there was something they liked about me. And that's what the woman said. She's like, we like you. So, and I remember her being like, can you promise me it's going to work? And I was like, I can promise you I'm going to try. And she's like, and I remember getting the phone call. I was actually flying to visit. It was my grandmother's funeral. And I was actually landing. And so my phone got the messages and it was like, congratulations, here's your lease. And I was so surprised I got it. And I remember walking down the conveyor belt to get to my transfer and being excited, being like, oh my God, I, got, I felt like I won. And then all of a sudden that feeling of discomfort of like, oh shit, now I have to create it. Like now I have to actually, it's one thing having the idea and then selling someone on the idea and getting like that first phase done. But then mm -hmm. I was like, oh, now I have to create it. And it's like creating it out of thin air. It was like something totally new and different. I couldn't just copy like a business plan. Yeah. And I remember having that sinking feeling and it just went here and me breathing. By the time I got to the end of the conveyor belt, which I guess is very symbolic, I literally was like, I was just like, well, you're in it. Like, you'll figure it out. You will yeah. figure it out. This is part of it. And just like sitting in it. But like, to your point, it is like, it's not creative. It's, it's uncomfortable. 
Like, yeah, yeah. You just pointed to one of my favorite words, discomfort. Oof. It's like the internal compass of like the guidance towards North Star is discomfort. And that requires such a massive reframe because we are biologically hardwired to avoid pain and seek pleasure. And again, it's like the root of all of our suffering, but yet growth happens through discomfort. Discomfort as one, as Susan David says, is discomfort is the price of admission for living a meaningful life. And so if you got to pay to play and that, and discomfort is what you willingly sacrifice to do something meaningful. And when we orient around that, then all of a sudden we lean into that, that feeling of discomfort of like, oh, this is going to be another moment, another threshold that's going to bring me something meaningful in my life. And it requires a different kind of reframe. And actually, I think that that is a foundational mindset shift for also approaching psychedelic work because mm. you're training yourself how to sit in the middle of fire during certain moments, not all the time, you know, but there's a lot of moments where it's like, you're sitting in a sit, you, there's nowhere to bolt. You can't just like run away from what you're feeling. This is it. You're facing it. You're feeling it. Would that be part of, and I'm sure the answer is yes, but just because you're, you know, more than neurobiology, would that be like, I know we can change, you know, our neural pathways, especially through psychedelics. Like you said, you get off the hamster wheel. It allows you mm -hmm. to start seeing other avenues, other paths that you've just been rigidly in. Is it, energetically learning how to sit in the discomfort? Because like you said, it's a training, like you're stuck in it, like you can't really go out and it passes through and you learn, or is that also a neural pathway? Oh, I think it's, I think it's also neurochemical. So right now I'm teaching transilience. I'm training over 40 people to become psychedelic coaches. Okay. So one of the mm. first things I say at the beginning of the program, because it's a lot of content, we're going through a lot of material. And do you know when you're learning something new and you hit that kind of like cognitive load and you're just like, or, or you hit a word like, for example, the latest research in neuroscience is this term predictive coding and the predictive coding model of the way the brain works basically is the foundation of psychedelic research. And when sometimes I hear, I'll say the word predictive coding, sometimes I'll just like watch people's eyes just like glaze over and like that's just like there it just doesn't like penetrate the brain and when we're learning a lot and we hit this threshold we tell ourselves i'm lost i'm confused i don't know what to do like i it's like shut down right but actually the reframe exactly I, i'm stupid this isn't making sense the reframe is that when, and, and it's agitating when we're in that struggle of learning something new, like I'm using an intellectual example right now, because I think we can all relate to it. It's like, oh my God, it's like this overwhelming feeling of like, fuck, this is so confusing and I got to learn this. And that feeling of cognitive load is actually a neurochemical epinephrine getting released into your brain saying pay attention. And so the reframe is not that you're stupid. It's that you're learning, you're expanding to 
expand beyond what you already know. Because if I just teach you what you already know, you're not expanding. You have to hit a threshold of what you know into an unknown territory, expanding into the unknown. That is physiologically, biochemically uncomfortable based on the way that humans are wired. And so when people are learning, they feel agitated and discomfort because it's neuromodulators that are agitating modulators that are actually getting released into your body because it's peaking your activation of arousal because after 25, we all talk about neuroplasticity, but after 25, you have to unlock certain gateways for neuroplasticity to happen. Neuroplasticity is learning, right? So yes, what you said about like the discomfort is on many levels. The discomfort is the story that we're telling ourselves that this emotion in my body is anger rather than disappointment, for example. So there's so many ways we can talk about discomfort, but we you can't change and grow and experience neuroplasticity without those neurochemicals that are agitating and uncomfortable to feel. But if you understand that and you reframe it, I'm not stupid. I'm just learning. And this is helpful. I'm expanding what I know. All of a sudden, we're teaching people how to adopt a growth mindset. And growth mindset can be very applicable to when we're sitting in psychedelic journeys as well. It's a okay, this is uncomfortable because I'm facing shame right now and that's okay. And just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's bad. And that's what kind of going back to what we said at the beginning, it's not wrong to feel shame. It's human. What we do after feeling shame, the knee-jerk reaction to eat the ice cream, turn on the TV, act out in aggressive rage, that's a poor coping mechanism for actually feeling the discomfort of a feeling like guilt or shame or, you know, whatever we're facing. And so sometimes I like to think of sitting in the fire as it like, it's just like burning it off, you know, and then, and then it passes. It is interesting. It's such a, that's such a training when you talk about learning. I mean, I have an eight year old and I'm sure anyone with kids can relate how often I'm telling her, and I liked kind of what you said, you, you framed it in a different way, but I tell her all the time, when it's like, I don't know, like, you know, you see them get frustrated when they're learning and her frustration is really high. And I'm always like, that's nothing more than you're just learning how to do it. That's what I always tell her. I'm like, that's how learning feels. I'm like, you'll get it. And then you're going to laugh that it was that it felt that hard for you before. And I'm like, that's just part of it. Like you can't get to the other place without walking through here. So, yeah. so I always like, sometimes when I'm really annoyed, I laugh, I'm like, get used to it. Cause if you don't feel this stuff, you're never learning. <laughs> It, that's exactly it. But as adults, like, why did we forget that as adults? Like, if you are going to go from depression towards, you know, I will say like a non-depressive state, there's going to be a discomfort in that threshold of Maybe. moving through that because that means you're learning. Transformation is equivalent to learning. Yeah. That's what yeah. neuroplasticity is. It's learning fundamentally. And if we're going to prune apart certain connections and rewire other connections, you will inevitably face the physical sensation of discomfort by definition of neuroanatomy. It's so interesting because it is, it is just learning something new, but one kind of involves like your energetics and the other learning, which I think people we've been trained to do is just how to like learn for your minds, right? Like how to mm -hmm. read a book, how to study a subject, how to sign up for your six month course. 
it's so interesting how like what we're talking about, it really breaks down to the same thing. But because like you said, we don't have everything so separate for us. We in this culture don't have this kind of integrated understanding of it. The other just seems so painful and mm -hmm. unattainable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's all the stories that we tell ourselves that prevent us from, you know, experiencing reality in a different way. So it's like, that's, it's like you're wearing glasses, right? So that's a great metaphor for how we experience life. We forget we've been wearing the same lens for so long that we forget, oh, I can actually just take these off for a second, clean them, maybe put on another pair of glasses, see what that looks like. That's what psychedelics essentially help us do. They help us become aware that we have glasses on our face and they help yeah. us take a different perspective for a moment to see ourselves through a different lens through a different perspective because life out there is really just a mirror reflection of your model of self of your story and models of reality is really about your sense of self within the world around you and actually that's what psychedelics do they disrupt the the highest level model which is the story of me and so hmm. they just they degrade the story for a certain amount of time. And a great analogy is also, you know, the when you think about a sled going down a hill over and over and over again, it's like a magnet. It's like an attractor state. It's easier to go through the same pathway that the sled already went down a hundred times because that's a well-worn groove. And it's harder to create a new pathway. That's a new neurological connection. But psychedelics shake, it's like getting a, a, a fresh blanket of snow on the hill. And then all of a sudden we can make a new choice a little easier. And we're able to do that because we're seeing something from a different mm -hmm. perspective. You know, like that's another thing that Pema said that I'll never forget because when she said it, I was like, that's exactly it. Like when we're experiencing depression, that cocoon of like small dark room, it's like your mind is the size of a postage stamp. Like you're seeing reality through this tiny, tiny, tiny hole. And that's all you can see. But yet really the true nature of reality is vast, unlimited. I mean, even those of us who I think are more, have done a lot of work or those who've you know, done a lot of, it's like, we're still looking through such a small prism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, the, it's the way that we, it's helpful. It's helps us survive. Right. And so that it's not like, God, why are, you know, it's, it's very helpful for us. So it's like having that knowing too, to just like have that level of understanding and self-compassion and to be able to see, yes. And there's so much more, you know, yes, there's so much more. And this is good for relationships you know, especially mm. romantic relationships where it's like, it's amazing to me that any two people can be in a relationship for five minutes <laughs> because we all see <laughs> reality so differently. And that's but so the often we pick someone opposite from us. So we're really seeing it differently. Right. So we have to really embody that <laughs> mindset of growth and thinking bigger and empathy and seeing okay, like, let's get really curious about like, how, how was your lens developed? 
you know, how, what led you to this conclusion that that's how you perceive reality now, you know? And I think like, this is our pathway towards these very divided times, you know, like that we live in such divided times is the source of all of our political wars and, you know, all of it when it's really just like, we were all just born into our family bubbles and the cultures that we were born with our belief systems that were handed to us. And that's how we survived that upbringing. I know. I've said this too. It's like they're, everyone is reacting to their, a product of their own environment. Everyone. Yep. So it's very easy to like pick one side and be like, the others are the bad ones or whatever it is you're looking at. It's like everyone's reacting to a product of their environment. <clears throat> and it is interesting. It's like maybe if everyone was doing psychedelics, then the world gets a little bigger and their environment isn't holding them hostage. I mean, that was probably a bad word for this specific topic, but like <laughs> it's not holding them down or putting mm -hmm. them, you know, so yeah, that's, it's really interesting. I have a question back to the partners. Do you and your partner journey together? <clears throat> yes, we do. So I am in a newer relationship. We're a year and a half together and um, I'm coming out of a 10 year long marriage, went through a divorce and wow. uh, my ex-partner and I journeyed a lot together. And my partner before my, my marriage, who is still someone that is very close to my heart because we journeyed a lot together all over the world. And we went really, really deep in altered states of consciousness together. And when you share that bond with someone, you're always bonded with them forever, you know? So he wasn't my person, but it was like, okay, you, we shared an incredible chapter and then I shared another incredible chapter and now I get to share a new chapter. So how, okay. Coming out of a 10 plus year relationship is hard. Like no matter how you slice it, that's hard. Even mm -hmm. with the good perspective of knowing like chapters end and this person's like wonderful. Yep. How does, how did that affect your practice or your journeys? Like in after the divorce, like in the in-between yeah, phase. Yeah, like going through it. Sometimes yeah. going through it is oh, almost yeah. worse than like when you actually like finally yeah. do it. But anything, when it starts to become emotionally hard, yeah. how did that affect like? Mm -hmm. Well, I do think that medicines help us feel. And when we feel, we heal, you know? And and I, it's it's, this is really interesting. And I'm curious your perspective on this. It's like, how do we know the difference between like, feeling it fully and feeling the grief and then actually like falling into a pattern of like <laughs> grieving. And, and there was a very distinct moment in a journey that I had where I was in this in-between phase. I was like a fish out of water. I've been living in the jungle outside for many years. And I was in this, like a few months in Austin visiting some friends. And I felt like I was in like a total fucking twilight reality. I was just like, <laughs> my whole reality was just like, yeah. And in the journey, there was this moment because like I built an incredible space with my ex-partner on the big island. We built a volcanic hot spring retreat center. It was like, you don't get better than like buying land and realizing that you tapped into a volcanic hot spring, you know, and having your own hot spring. Like it was such an amazing chapter of my life. And so there was a lot of grief and letting go. And it actually started in 2018, the volcano erupted and it was the Whoa. proverbial rug getting pulled out from under my life. And that was an intense portal of initiation. And I feel like over those years, I got a PhD in grief and I journeyed a lot and worked with that 
fire and that pain and learning so much about emotional reality and like how it is such an, a big impact in our lives and what it means to sit with suffering. It's, it's an advanced training ground because there's nowhere to run. You're just sitting in it. And I remember when I was in Austin, there was this moment where I felt like I was in the journey and I was thinking about the big island and my home. And I was starting to go into this like familiar pattern now of like shedding tears and like longing for my old life and like, why the fuck did this happen? And then it was so interesting, like in a moment, something just completely flicked a switch, like in my whole body being reality. And I sat up and I actually, I was laying down like with an eye mask and noise canceling headphones. And I actually, I sat up and I got right up and I stood up and I said, stop, stop, stop. You need to focus on what you're calling in. What's coming next? Like you've grieved it. You've had enough grieving around it. It's not helping. You need to focus on what you want. What do you want? And it was like that, you know? <laughs> it's, it, no, I get it. It's funny. It's, there's something, I think, to your point, there's something about the in between when you let something go before you step into something new that you're just on such shaky ground. Like you're completely oh, yeah. untethered, floating in the sea, which going back to is one of the most uncomfortable feelings. And it's different than that, like, it's different than the acute discomfort. Sometimes it's almost like, and I do think it's your ego comes into play and just starts doing anything to hold on. Like right. at a much lighter note, I wasn't going through a big breakup, but <clears throat> when we left LA, which I'd been in 22 years and then came to Cape Cod, I mean, it could not be a bigger difference of, wow. and, and it took like eight months or around 10 months of being here. All of a sudden I started to really grieve LA, like yeah. really sad, like yeah. missing things. I mean, I would like this poor man I met at the bus stop dropping off my daughter. He's so sweet. Mm. He's like, why would you leave LA? And I just started bawling. I mean, this guy on Cape Cod, I'm like, sorry, I'm just like, I was just in such a raw place yeah. about it. Yeah. And my partner who I love dearly, but doesn't deal as well with discomfort, it would make him angry. Like every time I get sad or cry, because I think in his mind, mm. he took it as me not liking it here. And somehow that's his fault, which it wasn't his fault. And it wasn't about me not liking it there. Mm -hmm. It was simply, and I kept telling him like, this has nothing to do with me not liking it here or wanting to be here or you, I'm grieving. Mm -hmm. It's my ego has to dismantle. And I kept saying my ego is because I was paying attention to what was coming up and some of the things I was missing. And it was interesting. And that's when I'm like, holy shit, you have more ego wrapped up in living there yeah. than you realize. Things were yeah. really surprising Totally, that I was like- Yeah, yeah. It's like part of your identity. Yeah. That, yes. I, I was like, wow, that was it. It's like the liminal space between where you were and where you're going. And it's groundless in liminal space. It's Wellness. the gap in between. It's groundless. And I went through the same thing. I was like, wow, so much of my identity story was like, I'm the person that built this epic retreat center and I didn't have it anymore. Same. I had a lot of that too. Cause I built the physical locations of the den and created this yeah. whole thing. And then the pandemic, like what? So yeah. that was part of it for me too. It was just my whole identity was mm -hmm. changing. And I was proud of myself because I just would sit in it and it took a little while. <clears throat> and there were a few times I remember I actually finally got to go visit LA. And when I came back, he's like, you were very happy. I could tell you were happy there. I guess we have to move. And I'm like, 
no, I go, I think you're not understanding. Like, I don't want to necessarily move back. And I definitely know I don't want to make that decision when I'm feeling this. Yeah. I was like, I am, it's taking a little while, but like, this is my ego dismantling. This is me just being sad and grieving, but I'm, I'm aware enough to know this is something I'm healing and we should, I should be making zero decisions from here. So let me heal this. When we heal this, if I want to move back to LA, we will have that conversation and maybe that's what will happen. But I have no clue right now because I know, because what happens in this, and I think this is what you're getting to, which is where the psychedelics I'm sure are very helpful for a lot of people. You stood up and said, no, no, stop it. Right. So many people would be like, well, clearly I need to move back. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that would be like going back there. I mean, there, and there never, you you couldn't. Right. And there never is. There really never go, is going I mean, back. Really right? thing. Yours was physically not there, but there really is never going back because everything's mm-hmm. changing constantly. So you yeah. never go back, even if, even if there's a way to get an apartment in the yeah. same place or try and date someone who looked and acted exactly like your ex, whatever it is, there's, yeah. or begging to go back with your ex. It could be that too. There's never going back. But I think a lot of people to just get out of that state. Yeah they can, they see clearly what was because you can't see ahead yet, but I'm sure the psychedelics help you with that, which Mm -hmm. I would love for you to talk about. So it's like, since you can't see ahead yet, that comes with a hell of a lot of trust that you can create it because, you know, you were talking about, but you can see what happened before. So it's so much easier for our ego mind to grab onto that. Yep. And that's where like the big grieving comes in those moments where, and I do think a lot of people then do go back versions of going back. Yep. Because that's all they know. Well, that's familiar. That's how we, that's how the brain works, right? We look for that attractor state, that familiarity. But it's like, when I think about like, imagine myself being with the same person that I fell in love with when I was 15, like rather than all the partners that I've had in my life that have like every new chapter of relationship has been exponential growth. Like I wouldn't have had that kind of growth. But to go through all that growth, I had to go through a lot of pain. And that's why it's like we have to completely reconfigure how we navigate discomfort in our lives. And you just said the word trust. And I, it, it's like another way of reframing. Like we, people might hear the word trust and it's like, oh, I trust that it's going to all work out. I trust that it's going to be all okay in the end. And it's like, actually, no, that's not the kind of trust I'm talking about. The kind of trust that we need to cultivate is that no matter what happens, we're strong enough to navigate it. Yes. And that's, and that's different than it's going to be fine. It's like, we don't know. No, you have to know. Trust your resiliency. Yeah. It's trusting that you have the capacity to face it. And that's what I do think that these medicines help us do is like they're teaching us how to rewire our relationship with the unknown, with the uncertainty, with discomfort, with pain, with suffering. It's like resilience training ground, (laughs) you know, like it's okay that we can sit here and feel it. And then you go out in the world and you apply it a little by little. You know, and it doesn't mean that it's not hard and it doesn't mean that you, you know, like become Buddha, but it means like that you slowly, very incrementally open a little bit at a time and trust more in yourself and your capacity. Thank you for your time. Thank you for these amazing insights. 
You're so welcome. And thanks for sharing everything that you did too. I really love having conversations where it's like more of that conversational dynamic and hearing everything that you shared too also really helps me. So thank you for all the work that oh, you do. Oh, please. I appreciate that. You're excellent. Excellent to talk to. I love it. Okay. Have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you.